just stepped inside of Psychotic Bump School, the place where education and entertainment meet at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome and you know you're here for another exciting edition and we're very proud to bring it to you on Psychotic Bump School. So ladies and gentlemen, tonight, oh, we have an amazingly full show as we always do. You know how we do it around here. Uh, coming up this evening, we're going to have the continuation and conclusion of our dating panel with Nicholas Mays, Aaron Wiley-Sands, and Lori Peacock. Uh, we started that conversation a few weeks ago, and I finally have the remainder of that conversation. I'd like to drop that on you tonight. we also going to have the obituary for the late and great B.B. Dickerson. You guys remember when we covered that story, the bass player of the band War and the lead vocalist of the classic, classic tune, the world is a ghetto. A. Scott Galloway attended the celebration of life over the weekend, ladies and gentlemen, and he's here to uh, share some some words and insights from the family of the obituary for the late and great B.B. Dickerson, Morris B.B. Dickerson. So that's A. Scott Galloway. And also, uh, this is a bit of a somber note. We're going to have the good brother, Mr. Jeffrey Keller in the house, and he's going to be helping us pay tribute to the late great comedian Paul Mooney. That's right. Mr. Paul Mooney has made his transition, y'all. One of the most unique figures in the world of comedy and entertainment in general. He was also a personal friend of Mr. Keller. So we're going to have some very poignant sentiments shared tonight from our good brother, Mr. Jeffrey Keller. So that's going to be our lineup. So you might want to call your friends and family to the radio or the computer because we are about to set it off. So this is KCWGTheTruth.com. My name is DJ Rome. Welcome to Psychotic Bump School. Stay tuned for more. We're going to kick off our show with Mr. Jeffrey Keller after this. Yeah, this is Jeff Keller from the Pocho Hour Power on KPFK 90.7 FM. And you're listening to the Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWGTheTruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. Oh, yeah. What a fucking rhyme time is blow your mind. Time to say it's nothing worse than a verse. They hear some verse. They call me rude, some dudes, fiery attitude. Claiming I both smoke, sometimes sing the blues. Train metal and settle, try to never backpedal. From the pile, some got to get a shot. The little border I avoid, I test the paranoid. I never had to be bad, my mama raised me mad. So what I got is hot, love my life a lot. I'm never sad, just glad, that's why I thank my dad. Nah, I ain't with this. But watch out, I ain't with it. They never give up, go with me, sit. Know that my listening won't clock in I ain't with it. I'm on my back just because I'm black I can't walk in the park just because I'm dark Boys are blue in the crew, sweating me and I'm through With the crap that they pull up on the avenue When they're accusing the black, it's gonna cost them The same crap that they pulled up there in Boston Blaming us for a crime without them checking the time That's why I'm down with Al, plus the F.O.I Don't get caught in between the evil, good and the mean Cause they'll get you in their fucking anti machine
just wanna wreck and flex. On a kid, what I did was try to be the best. But so they fingered the trigger, figure I was a bigger. And they started to search me, so I headed west. With the Cali and Rally was for a brother's death. It was the fuzz who shot me, not the plus of cuz. I wondered why I was like, so I just held my mic. But in my mind, I was blind, so I just tried to find a reason we was. Just the way that we was, so I just stayed in the crib until I got a buzz. Okay, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. And ladies and gentlemen, the world of comedy has just lost a landmark figure. Paul Gladney, a.k.a. Paul Mooney, ladies and gentlemen, just passed away. Uh, August 4, 1941. Uh, that just happens to be... Uh, my auntie's birthday and my sister's birthday. I'm just looking at this and I'm just spontaneously tripping off this because I didn't know this. And August 4th, this happens to be uh, the birthday of uh, Barack Obama. And he passed and made his transition on May 19th. That's the day that Malcolm X was uh, taken from us. And it's also my beloved brother David's birthday. Oh my God, it's crazy. But uh, <laughs> Paul Mooney, ladies and gentlemen, uh, was a incredibly renowned figure in the world of comedy, the world of television screenwriting. He was such a mentor to all black comics and comics across the spectrum, no matter what your ethnic demographic is. Uh, Paul Mooney, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to talk about him tonight. And I'm honored to have this guest here. You guys know this voice. Uh, been here multiple times before. Definitely, definitely one of the uh, the, the, the funky offsprings of the great Paul Mooney. Uh, Y'all know him from the Pocho Hour Power, one of the top rated radio shows in Southern California over there on 90.7 FM KPFK. And it's always an honor to have him here. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our good brother, Mr. Jeffrey Keller. Mr. Keller, are you in the house? Yes, sir. How you doing, Ron? Oh man, where you get all that bass from, man? You did you? <laughs> are you on steroids? Did you did you take uh, some nectar juice this morning, man? What, what, what you got going on, bro? Man, it must have been that H two O I had this morning. Man, and all that Peloton working out you be doing, man. It's like I'm surprised you got all this energy left. You be sweating so much, brother. You sound good, man. How you doing? Man, you know I'm hanging in there. It's, it's uh, it was man. a rough week, but uh, man, you ain't kidding. You ain't kidding. Paul Mooney, Jeffrey Keller. I mean, you know, this show's only been on the air for four years, good brother, but you have shared multiple times uh, about what Paul Mooney has has done for your career, good brother. When you heard about his transition, good brother, uh, what, what what came to mind for you? Oh, man, I was just, uh, it was kind of crazy because I had slept in that morning and I woke up and I had all these missed phone calls and messages and texts and i'm like what's going on and then i saw that he had uh transitioned and i was like oh wow mm. you know uh, you knew the day was coming you know he wasn't doing well but to actually hear the news it's it's still uh you know tough how would you articulate his influence on you well you know with with paul paul wasn't only somebody that like mentored me he was he was a friend mm. you know like I, I would try to get paul right like i would try to like say something where he couldn't have a, a retort right where he couldn't say something back mm-hmm. and I, I one time i saw him um dancing on the hugh hefner playboy after dark this like 60s show mm. And so I, I walked up to Paul and I said, uh, I said, hey, Paul, I'm not saying you old, but 
I saw you dancing on Hugh Hefner's Playboy After Dark. Mm-hmm. And Paul was like, oh, that's right, homie. It was me and the other brother, and I got all the coochie. And I was like, what? <laughs> wow. I'm like, what? Who is this guy? You know, he was just, he would call me and run some jokes by me. And I'm like, what mm. am I going to say? You the great Paul Mooney. Am I going to say that joke sucks? <laughs> you know? Wow. He would call you and t- try some jokes. So wait a minute, man. Take, take, take the audience back, Jeffrey Keller. Mm-hmm. Take the audience back from... What do you recall about the first time you ever heard of Paul Mooney? And please take us back to the first time that Paul Mooney met Jeffrey Keller. Can you break it down for us? Oh, man. I I met Paul uh, at the comedy store. And I was parking cars. I had just got the job and I was parking cars at the comedy store. Hmm. And Paul said to me, he said, oh, homie, you're doing too good a job. Uh, you need to bump a couple cars so she'll move you inside. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. nice. And so I bumped a couple cars and she moved me inside. He's like, see, I told you. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Wow. That's but, uh Yeah, man. We'd, uh, you know, we I'd walk down Hollywood Boulevard and he'd I'd run into him and we'd go to coffee shops or. He invite me to go to gigs with him and you know he tell me well why don't you try to joke this way or that way and and then he saw me do an impression of him on stage hmm. i said uh wouldn't it be funny if paul mooney hosted african-american movie classics <laughs> and i i said it, and paul would come on stage and sit down and be like oh oh homie Welcome to African American. Oh, forget that. Welcome to nigga movie classics. <laughs> and I hear in the background, oh, 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 that's brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you got the Mooney stamp of approval? He said, oh, oh, that's brilliant. Wow. <laughs> and then the last joke I did was uh, in that, on that bit was, oh, I have to show my favorite nigga movie classic, The Titanic. <laughs> Why is it a nigga movie classic? Because a lot of white people die and no niggas get blamed for it. <laughs> I hear in the back, oh, 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 yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. <laughs> wow. So, wait, so when you were parking cars, were you already doing comedy at that time? Yeah, I had, I had uh, been doing comedy about a year. Oh, yeah? And then I was sitting in the back just watching him, right? And I would try to get into his mind how he writes material, right? Yes. Like, uh, this would be a Mooney joke that after he passed, this is the first joke I wrote, and that would be like a Mooney in in the tribute to Paul. Mm. And people ask me, they're like, hey, Jeff, you know, aren't you afraid to be canceled by the material that you do? And I said, nah, I'm not afraid of the cancel culture. They've been trying to cancel black folks since they brought us here. Come on. Right? That that would be a Paul Mooney joke right there. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And he wouldn't be wrong either. So mm-hmm. you were already doing comedy for a year. So the reason why I ask you is because yeah. in case you hadn't heard, in case the audience hadn't heard, there's going to be a third fight after all between Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder. Mm-hmm. Now, Deontay Wilder got smoked both times, in my opinion. I mean, he was lucky to get a draw the first time, and he definitely was not in the fight the second time. 
and now they got a third fight. But he has a different trainer this time. So believe it or not, it ties to my question about you and Paul Mooney. So you're, you've already been doing comedy. So you already had your style that you were figuring out. So what because they say you, you, you know, I'm not calling you a dog, brother, but can you teach an old dog new trick? What new tricks about comedy did you actually pick up? You were already doing comedy when you met Paul. Yes. So what, what, what did he, what did you pick up from him in terms of how to deliver a joke, how to tell a story, how to sandwich humor in between something serious? How did you, what did you pick up from Paul that changed your comedic style? Well, one thing that Paul told me that was, True, he said, comedy is spiritual. Hmm. Now, I'll say that again for the comedians out there. Comedy hmm. is spiritual. Hmm. That when you get on stage, don't edit yourself. It's the last free-flowing art hmm. where, those, where those words, where those emotions hit your brain on stage. You have to let them out don't edit a lot of comics will just go up there and just say what they've written and something will come to them but they won't express it mm. right mm -hmm. and then just by watching him you know watching him do two hours of comedy watching his timing watching his views on different uh subjects and watch how he lays it out there and how he brings it back and how he views it and how he is just fearless and don't care. Mm -hmm. You learn all that stuff. Then you have to ask yourself, do I want to take on all the bullets that are going to come my way by mm -hmm. doing that type of comedy and lose all the gigs or lose, not be considered for writing stuff because you've seen too controversial with your material. Mm. So that's what I learned by watching him. So how did you answer that question for yourself? When you asked yourself, I, Jeffrey Keller, uh, am I willing to take those bullets on? Uh, how did you respond to your own question? Well, I just, you know, I, I, when I changed, I, I lost a lot of gigs because, hmm. you know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden your point of view is not with the general point of view. You know, they, they, how many comedians do you see that do intel, black comedians that do intelligent comedy and they don't put down black people or they're not talking about smoking weed or they're not talking about sex or they're not talking, they're just intellectually breaking down the social situation of black people. Mm. Mm. Nobody. Not many. Nobody. Yeah, nobody. Nobody. People dabble. Chris Rock dabbles. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Dave Chappelle dabbles. Mm -hmm. But they won't put both feet in because they don't want to hurt themselves financially. I saw Paul, uh, not in person, but I saw a video. Uh, I was probably, I don't know if it was on Netflix or it was several years ago, but I remember he was saying something so offensive that he was actually laughing at people as they were getting up and walking out. <laughs> <laughs> and he was cracking up. Paul's contemporaries made other choices with their careers, right? And their comedy and their art. Right. So right. What, what, who's an example of that, that you could compare and contrast with the way Paul Mooney did it? Well, the only other person that would do it like Paul was Dick Gregory, mm. right? But that's why they were buddies. But they came, look, at, let's be real. 
The Paul Mooney passing is the end of an era of comedy that you'll never see again. Mm. Your George Carlin's, your Dick Gregory's, your Mort Saul's, your Paul Mooney, you won't, you won't see that kind of political insight in humor again because people are too busy wanting to be liked and not be canceled by cancel culture. Hmm. Wow. The end of an era. Look how deep that is right there. Not a comedian, an era. Wow. Not a decade. Mm-hmm. An era. Era. Well, again, I, break it down. I mean, how did Dick Gregory get his through and across versus how Paul did it? And how can we appreciate Paul's unique um, contribution to the area, the era that he's leaving behind for comedian, comedians like you, and you know, just the lay person like me who knows nothing about comedy, um, Paul's unique stamp on that era that he's left behind that we're never going to see again, as you say. What was it? Well, well, one thing like Paul said, he he said that they need to put my material in a time capsule. In a hundred years from now, when they open up that time capsule. They'll know exactly what was going on in America at that time. Mm. There's not too many comedians that can say that, whose whose comedy is timeless. Mm. Timeless. That's like, yeah, yeah. You want to know what was going on uh, during the the OJ situation? Listen to Paul Mooney. Mm. Rodney King, listen to Paul Mooney. Mm. Right, these shootings. Listen to Paul Mooney. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nobody that will just lay it out there, put it in your face, go somewhere. You're like, where is he going with this? This is uncomfortable, mm. and then bring it back to where you're laughing your 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 tail off. Wow. Wow. Did you become a better comedian as a result of your friendship with him? Oh, most definitely. I was. I was. I was blessed to be around that, mm. you know. And how often do you have a chance to be around greatness? Mm-hmm. Think about that. How often do you have a chance to tour with greatness? How often do you have a chance to be, I mean, I'm blessed. I mean, I've been in the recording studio with Stevie Wonder, mm. you know. I've been I've opened up for Paul. I mean, those are two icons in the business that they're second to none. Mm. And and what the thing I guess what I struggle with for myself with the Paul situation is he asked me to open up for him or he would run jokes by me. And I didn't see it as uh, someone that thought I was very talented, that 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 somebody had a lot of potential, you know, I wasn't there mentally, but, you know, when he passed, and I, now I look back at it, I'm like, you know, he saw a lot of potential in me that I did not see in myself. What do you think he saw? He saw that I could be a very good comic. What that I could, I could, I could maybe carry on Mm-hmm. It's not at his level because I'm, I'm not foolish enough to think that I could be like that. But to somehow, 
carry on a flickering light mm-hmm. of, of his brightness of what he does. Mm. Yeah, he's shown his light, good brother, that's for sure. And so you ever roasted Paul Mooney? You ever just got into a back and forth? Just a <laughs> man, bag- you don't roast Paul Mooney, man. <laughs> just a bagging session, y'all sitting out in the coffee shop when you rocking down Sunset. It's like, yo, man. You big bucket headed looking. I mean, did you ever just go back and forth and just try to roast Paul Mooney? Man, come on. I ain't trying to get my feelings hurt. <laughs> Look at I saw him. This is comedian Dave Tyree. <laughs> Dave Tyree wrote on the Roseanne show. A lot of comedians know who Dave is. Dave, we were in the back hallway of the comedy store. Myself, Paul, Dave. Dave had his CD, his own CD in his hand. He was selling out of the back of his car. And, and he walks up to Paul. Why? I don't know why he did this. Mm. And he said, uh, Paul, uh, you want to buy my CD? <laughs> and Paul said, uh, what's it called, homie? He said, the funniest black man in America. <laughs> and Paul said, oh, now, homie, we know who that is. <laughs> he said, that's why you're selling your car. out of Your CD's out of the back of your car. And I sell mine in stores. Well, <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, you couldn't get them, right? No. You could. Like one time, I asked the Mooney twins, I said, give me one of the first jokes Paul ever wrote. Mm-hmm. So they told me this joke about Tarzan and Jane. And so I, I said, Paul, I wrote this new joke, man. Tell me what you think. And I say, yeah, Tarzan, blah, 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 blah. And Paul looks at me and goes, I go, Paul, what do you think? He says, uh, very funny, but very old. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, Paul, but you wrote that joke. He goes, oh, uh, I know. <laughs> Man. You know what I'm saying? You, you uh, just, you couldn't get them. No, no way, no way. Well, who comes close to him? Because you, you mentioned Chappelle, but I'm trying to think of another contemporary. There's Eddie Murphy. You mentioned Chris Rock. There was Red Fox. You mentioned Dick Gregory. Um, and just this gentleman, Dave Tyree, you're talking about. So who's who's in his stratosphere? Who's Who else is in that lane? Was he the only one? He's the, he's the only one, man. Mm, mm, you mm. know, the only one that would be close to Paul would be like George Carlin. Yeah. You know, they all came up around the same time. And as they got older, they got more fearless, right? Mm-hmm. They got more fears. They, they, they're more didn't care. They had more seasoning. They had more experience. They saw the world through a different lens. And they could bring that to the stage. And that's the, that's the problem. These mm-hmm. comedians will see the world through a different lens, but they're afraid to take it to the stage. Mm. Because, again, they want to be liked. They want to make money. You know, I mean, even Dale Hughley, you know, is political, but he's not in the same stratosphere fear as Paul. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't make you like laugh like Paul will have you crying mm-hmm. and thinking at the same time. How, how deep is that? <laughs> that's and, real and, deep. And that's where I try to get. I try to get where I can have you think and laugh at the same time. Mm. What are your t- what's your take on? your take now uh, in 2021 um, compared to his evolution with the N-word and how he approached that and you know when he decided that he was no longer going to use that, uh, how did that shape your views on uh, delivering your brand of comedy? 
you know, everybody has their path. Everybody has evolution in their life. Mm-hmm. And that's where he evolved after seeing his friend uh, Richard's uh, snap. Mm-hmm. Right. But Richard did the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Richard was like, yeah, I was in Africa and I looked around and I said, there's no names here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not going to use it no more. Mm-hmm. And so Richard did it and then Paul did it after that. Mm. You know, I haven't evolved to that yet. (laughs) (laughs) I still got too much anger in me too. (laughs) To evolve to that yet. (laughs) Sometimes that word just makes your point. I'm sorry. Well, so did Richard, who wrote that? Was that like a spontaneous off the cuff uh, moment? I remember Richard Pryor doing that in clips. Was that when he was with Paul Mooney writing that or was that just sort of just a a, a riff that Richard Pryor did on stage one night about the N-word? Yeah, I, I'm not sure how that came about. Um, I just know, like Paul told me at the comic store, like when Richard would get ready for a show that they were going to shoot, he would do an hour in the original room and then Paul and David Banks would rewrite it. Then he'd go in the main room and do that same hour. And then him and Paul and Banks would rewrite it. And then he would go in the belly room and do an hour. And then they rewrite it. And they would do that for a month. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine getting three hours of comedy a night mm-hmm. on stage? Mm-hmm. That's, oh. that's just, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and you don't have background dancers either. You, just up there, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You just up there talking your stuff. It's like that ain't easy to captivate an audience like that. So <laughs> there, there, there's got to be an art to it. He just makes it look easy. It's not easy. How 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 hard is that to do, Mister Keller? Come on, three hours a night. He working on one hour set, three hours a night for a month. Wow, to make it look like it's easy when they film it. Do you, I mean, okay, so given that, do, how often do you feel, do you feel like you're working hard enough? Do you feel like you are no. as dedicated as he? <laughs> no, no. See, my problem, I'm a real, I'm like, no. <laughs> but see, he, but they, they, they had the opportunity, right? He had the opportunity. He had the venue that would let him do that. Mm. What venue now would let a comedian, you know I mean, besides Dave Chappelle, right? Where Dave goes on stage and does five hours. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's no place that you can go and go, hey, you know, I want to work out this material for an hour, two hours. They'd be like, man, you lost your mind. Unless you're going to put butts in the seats, right? Right. And see, Mitzi, she always called the comedy store a workout room. That's why she only paid comics like $15, $20 a night. Hmm. Mitzi as in Mitzi McCall? Mitzi Shore. Oh, okay. Yeah, the owner of the comedy. I'm sorry, the owner, you know, Mitzi. Yes, he's not funny. Get him off the stage. That Mitzi. Wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Man, I just dated myself. I said Mitzi McCall from like Rhyme and Reason, Richard Dawson, whatever that show was back in the day. I'm like, oh, damn. I didn't I, even get that. But she I don't even like, know she's yeah. still alive anymore. I'm like, she Ooh. had that weird voice. That yep. Weird. Yep. Wow. Well, um, I, I know this is personal to you, man. Um, I know there's a going away celebration um, coming up uh, this week on Tuesday. You're planning to go, right? 
Yeah, I was, I was uh, asked to be there. It's just gonna, it's just family and close friends. Wow. Um, so it's not gonna be a bunch of community, but it's gonna be, you know, I'm just nervous about it, man, because you're gonna be a lot of legends there, a lot of oh. peers, uh, you know, it's family. You just, you just hope that, you know, you don't embarrass yourself and you, and you, and you do justice, man. Mm hmm. Well, um, I hope you come back and uh, share that with us, man. What an honor, man. What an honor to, to, to be invited to do something like that. Um, see, th this is what it is. I mean, the, the public persona is one thing, ladies and gentlemen. But when, when you lose a friend in this business, that means, you know, you, you went on more than one occasion. You went beneath the surface with this person and it, it was real. And so to, to get an acknowledgement like that from someone's family of this stature of a Paul Mooney, Mr. Keller. Uh, talk about talk about being over the moon. Um, yeah. You you this is this is an incredible honor. Um, well, uh, you know what Paul would say. Paul would say there's only yeah. one moon, you know, above a bunch of stars. That was him. That was him. This is Ty Phoenix, and you're listening to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWG, thetruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet. I'm driving around in my own feelings. Few of them in the past women. Most of them don't even So I can feel the distance I wanna be high But I keep digging How do I survive without a living? I wanna be right But I never stay calm no. I'm sick of it all Plus too many questions
Aaron, in what way does objectification impact the, the level of engagement that you might experience out there, the level of maturity, uh, whether it be world experience, uh, or just this, this expectation that you have to be a certain way in order to meet a certain criteria of uh, readiness, quote unquote, for a relationship with certain guys. Uh, can either of you speak to the issue of objectification in today's society as it relates to love, dating, and relationships, either Lori or Aaron? I sure can. <laughs> I sure can because, um, I, you know, again, I, 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 do, I did a lot of online dating because unlike Aaron, I don't necessarily have guys just coming on to me when I go out and about. So I, you know, online. That darn Aaron. I know, right? Gosh darn it. I, so it's not it. like that. It's, no, I mean, girl, no. own it. It's okay. Own it. I, it, it. You know, you got it like that. Go, girl. I, I'm, I'm envious. So, no, but I, uh, so with online dating here, here, this is, this is what happens with me. I don't know. I don't have provocative photos. I don't have provocative profile. It's, I'm very conservatively dressed. And I don't have any fish lip, you know, duck lip pictures, none of that. Right. And mm. I will literally be talking to a guy and within the first, you know, three or four sentences, it gets to a sex conversation. It becomes mm. about sex. And it's tricky because I love sex, but I don't just want sex, you know, mm -hmm. and it's very, very hard to get past that. And what I have found is many of these guys expect to come over and have sex. They want to take you to dinner. They don't want to buy you a drink. They don't want to get to know you. And I did that for a little while. And then I was like, oh, heck no, I'm not doing this anymore. But mm -hmm. I realized, I think, I think a lot of women must do that for them to continue to expect it and think it's going to happen. And, and I have found, um, you know, that a lot of men, they, they want to do things like they see in pornography. And I'm thinking to myself, what is that about? I don't like that. I don't want that. I'm not, you know, that's, that's not something that, that turns me on. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I've watched porn. I watch porn. I think it has its place. I, I, I don't, I'm not against it, mm -hmm. but I do think it definitely objectifies women. I do think it definitely demoralizes women a lot. And, um, you know, that that's difficult for me. Um, so yeah, I think demographically, it's, it's, uh, age wise, is, is there a continuum? Is it a certain kind of guy that's doing that to Lori? Well, or? you know, I, and here's my thing is I tended mostly date white guys and that's probably my problem right there. Like I, I mm. need to probably venture out to, to some of our brothers, but, um, <laughs> but I mean, I'm open. I've dated all ethnicities right. really. Right. Um, and right. I'm open to just, just to, you know, somebody special, but, but that's what I've, I've found. And they tend to be younger too. There, there's, I tend to get younger guys from me, younger than me, um, trying to, to get with me. And I'm sometimes very, very young guys. Um, I, mm. I prefer somebody who's at least 35 and even then that's pushing it. I would rather have somebody 40 and above. Right. Um, I haven't dated a whole lot of men my age or older. It's mostly been younger, younger guys, because those are the ones that, you know, want me. I don't know. They got mom issues right. or something. I don't know. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, any ideas about how to handle objectification? Aaron Wiley sends uh, a lot of young ladies deal with this and ladies across the spectrum, especially in the online dating world, like Lori is talking about, they're dealing with this. Uh, any thoughts on that, Aaron Wiley sends about how to manage that and uh, ways in which it's shown up in your life, perhaps? Um, I would say that 
I mean, as a woman, I think any woman, there was this video on Twitter. Um, it was a, this young girl. She was outside. I don't know if you guys saw it. She was doing a video and this man just came over to her and just started talking to her. And it showed what we, what women deal with. And then she's a young woman. He was clearly by his voice and older. And he was just kind of, so what are you doing? So why are you out here? I mean, you know, it was that kind of leering kind of thing. And so mm -hmm. I've dealt with that since I was a young girl, men being inappropriate and especially, and I'm sure Lori too, as an actor in the industry, especially more when I was younger, I would just get it a lot. It was just always inundated with sort of those types of overtures. Mm -hmm. I haven't experienced it in my dating life because I don't know, I, people know, don't, yeah, <laughs> don't approach don't. me like that. <laughs> so they don't. Um, okay. I'm somebody who puts off kissing for months. So I'm not, you know, I'm not. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I do understand what it is to be objectified. And I, I do think it is just a world issue. It's not even an American issue. It's how young boys are raised. And I think that, Lori, do you have sons or daughters? Or would I do. I have sons, teenagers, 14 and 16. Okay. And I caught oh. my 14 year old watching yeah. porn. And I oh. tried, I've told them no mm -hmm. porn because I don't want them thinking that's real sex, right? right. I don't want them thinking that's what right. sex is about. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of an epidemic, too, that that they've been so because I, I read an article in Time a couple of years ago that young boys have watched it so much. I'm not talking about your sons, just, you know, in general, but that that it affects their ability when it comes to having sex with a human woman, either they can't get erect because they're so used to, you know, seeing those images and they don't get excited by, you know, just the human body anymore because they're so used to just sort of the plastic look. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I I. I, I think it's a, a man problem and I'm sure Lori has raised her sons or sons to respect women. But I think that men, you know, have a different kind of sexual appetite and sometimes maybe they're more, especially young boys attracted to porn. And so that's just natural, but. Um, and you know what, you're, you're right. Nicholas, I want to get you back in it. Cause I, I know Lori has kids, but I can't recall if anyone else on this panel has children. I know Dr. Chase Moore does. Anyone else have kids on this panel besides Lori? Because if not, it's okay. Because uh, Nicholas, are, are you a dad? Yeah, but very young. He, he he's not one years old yet. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so no porn for him. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, Nicholas, uh, what what are your thoughts on what uh, Aaron and Lori have been talking about? It's interesting that they brought up porn because if you think about it, social media has become the soft porn. Yeah. You know, it's mm. it's gotten to a point where that's all they see. Like, even if they what if they weren't watching a uh, porn, it's so much being displayed on social media. You can open up, especially Twitter. You know, I've been on Twitter where you'll see a post where people are showing porn on their on their profile. Mm. You know, so you can you'll see it in that way, or you'll see a young lady post posting pictures in their underwear, half dressed. So it's showing them that this is what is expected you know this is what they should expect from young ladies and and you know they this and then even the older men even though they should be at a level where they understand that this is only entertainment or this is a young person's mindset they view it in the same way like i'm, I'm on social media so if you're showing me on your profile that it's mm -hmm. all about sex being half dressed this that and the other then that's all I want from you when we hook up, you know, when we, when I connect with, with you 
and it carries over to the dating sites because you know social media is so strong is is stronger than the dating site so before i come onto a dating site looking for somebody to date i'm already on social media seeing that it's easy that's that's my mindset you know everything is easy so i want easy when i go to the dating site so it social media has really hurt a lot of people when it goes into the relation part of it and you know it's it really you can't control it because of how big it's gotten and you know even when you got TikTok now it's all video pictures so you can expose mm. people in a totally different way you can make people believe that this is our way of living even though it's not real for people that want relationships but overall that's all you see when you get into social media and then that's all they search for when it comes to dating. And during the pandemic, like Aaron said, is it, all these things have ex exploded because people have been isolated and quarantined. And so yes. as a young man, you have a young son. He's only one. And Lawrence right. has teenage young men coming up. And so can I piggyback well, on that, too? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. go ahead. I, I just want to say, too, as but I'm I'm an older woman now, like Lori says, a woman of a certain age. But it. it it does seem like this false faux, because I appreciate everything he just said, this false faux body of this, you know, has come out. And I wonder what, you know, parents raising their young sons, you know, what they're doing with this sort of Kim Kardashian-esque look that's been mm -hmm. sort of force fed to them, making mm -hmm. them believe that this is how women look. This is how, and, and that's not, I mean, her body does, that's not real. Not real. It's all pretend. Mm -hmm. And you see it more with, you know, a younger generation, Gen Z, millennials, that they have this kind of faux fake, you know, thing. And I, I just wonder is, so how is that with you, Lori, with having a son, a young son, is he more attracted to a natural body or has he been inundated with these images of this false reality that they look for that? Mm. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like my, my, my 16 year old had a little girlfriend for a while and her pictures, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, you know, we're, I think she was 15 or 16 years old and I, she's showing her midriff and she was, I was just, I was appalled. Um, but she was normal. I mean, she was a normal person, normal body and everything, but I, you're right. And, and the thing is, is that we women, not, not us, but women are the ones that feed into this, right? Like right. we know that it, it makes us money. We know that it, it gets us fame and celebrity. So, you know, you turn on a music video or you, or you turn on the TV and you see these strippers, basically. I mean, they're, they're strippers and they're proud to be strippers. And, you know, there's right. no Remember stig when there's, it used to be shameful? Yes. There's no <laughs> stigma around it. Now it's like, I'm a, I'm a stripper and now I'm a rapper and now I'm rich. You know, and it's like, okay, well, you could do this too. Mom, I'm going to be a stripper because I could be, oh my gosh, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. There is no stigma around it. So it's not just, I mean, obviously the men are the ones that are paying for it and they're feeding into this, but the women are the ones that are, are, are letting themselves be exploited in this way as well. It's, it's really, it's really difficult. It. A lot of women are aspiring to be it. You know yes. what I mean? To yeah. have that body set because then they begin to look like the same woman over and over again. The same, I mean, you know what I mean? They all mm -hmm. have that same look. And I, and that, not, yeah. to me, I would think men would be bored with it and want something natural and different and unique. But I, I don't know. Nicholas, why aren't they bored with it, Nicholas Mays? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, tell us. Uh, I finally have a question. Why aren't y'all bored with it? <laughs> I, I believe it's still, and to be honest, just speaking from a man's point of view, it's still attractive. You know, it's still, mm -hmm. that's just like if you walk down the street and all you seen was women coming your way. Like it's, it's a busy neighborhood or a busy street and women just constantly walking past you 
a man doesn't eventually say, oh, I don't seen too many women. And they're like, <laughs> I'm tired of seeing these women come down the street. And in reality, he's like, man, all these beautiful women and not a man is walking with them. So it's like the a candy store to him. He doesn't view it as, oh, I'm tired of seeing this. It's just like the more the better in most men's mind is just to be honest and, and definitely most young men is is like and like i say social media is like the soft porn so now they don't have to sit back and watch one porn video or site now it's just left and right it's coming to them all day you seeing women left and right and then that's that's all their, their mindset so was it who was it that rapper was it chance the rapper said give me a woman with stretch marks and, the, and there was like that huge appreciation uproar where he mm. wanted the natural body so i'm i understand that men are always going to be attracted to women and, and would love hordes of women coming their way but do you get is there a feeling of the falseness the false booty the false you know the things that aren't real that aren't they don't care, Aaron. Okay. They don't, they okay. really don't, they really don't <laughs> okay. care if it's fake. Let me just accept that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Wait a minute. All right. Wait a minute. Um, I was trying to fight for it, but you're right, Lord. Okay, well, well it, it does make a difference. Um, so I, I want to turn to Nicholas, though, because I, I want to give him a chance to to respond to that. Uh, Nicholas, mm -hmm. do, do, do the guys care? Yeah, I, I I I believe so. Just from my point of view, I believe so. Now with the younger men, maybe not. Okay. And I think, and I believe with older men, definitely care, but they also be on the balance. Like they're they're debating. Like hopefully this is real. You know, it mm. it, it, it looks perfect. So I want to believe that it's real. So they're trying to lie to themselves. So I believe majority of the mature men, they want it to be real. They're that part. Yeah, but they also want to believe it. Like even when you they brought up the Kardashian, you for a long time, men was like, no, that's just, you know, that's just how she is. That ain't that ain't fake. But, you know, sooner or later, you're going to learn the truth. And then they look at it a little different than what they used to. Nicholas, I'm going to ask the ladies a question. And this is probably going to come right back to you. So stand by. Okay. Uh, Lori, Aaron, uh, to what degree do you have confidence that despite this reality that men are raised in, in a highly sexualized uh, society, to what degree do you have confidence that a certain level of mature men, you know, like Nicholas said, is able to exert a certain level of self-control and discipline uh, to where he can still carry himself in a way that he's not tempted by everything that he sees? Uh, how much confidence do either of you have in that? It seems like you're asking about fidelity. No, just self-control, because there is if I, I think it is an age thing, a certain age of guy or person, you know, they might be more uh, promiscuous or active, you know, depending on where they are in life. But some are some are. But as you age, sometimes, yes, faithfulness can come into it, but just self-control so that you're not uh, subjecting yourself to potential risks, whether from STDs or uh, babies that you don't want. Uh, to what degree do you have confidence that despite this sexualized and sexually charged society, that there are some men that are able to uh, make some distinctions about what's appropriate and what's not? I really think it's up to, it, there's an individual basis. And um, Lori seems to attract young men. I like older men, so I go, 
for older. And so there's, and, and not to say a, a man, you know, will have a roaming eye. It, it doesn't matter. It's about his character and his integrity. So I just think it, it depends on the individual, but I believe a grown man can be disciplined like a grown woman can be. You make a decision that you've been there, done that, and that you want something more. And can a 20 year old man do that? 20 year old, 20 year old. I don't, man. I don't date 20 year old men. So I don't, <laughs> and I don't know any. You don't know any. Okay. Uh, Lori, can a younger I don't know man? Any, I mean, no. Okay. Um, okay. I do know some. And um, okay. <laughs> uh, cause they come, I swear these young guys come at me and I'm like, I'm old enough to be your mother. Like this is creepy, you know? Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that some of them can. I, I think that some of them can, but I, I've kind of lost faith. And I, I hate to say this with the, the wonderful mm. men that are on this panel today, because you guys are wonderful men. No, I want um, you to tell the truth, though. That I, I like that you're keeping it real. <laughs> I am at the point now, after years and years of going through just one creep after another, um, one disappointment after another, one heartbreak after another, I, I'm at the point where I don't know that I have much faith in men, period that I think that there are good men. I think there there are, obviously there's going to be some good men out there. I think they're probably already in relationships. And I think the ones that are not, I just don't think they're very good, good people. And I, I wish I was attracted to women because I think it would be a lot easier for me um, to find a connection there. But mm. yeah, I mean, that's just me. I'm dated. It's been a long time. And it's, if, I and I have stories and stories and stories of, of situations and things where I've just been, you know, pretty mistreated. Now, granted, I've had men who wanted relationships with me that I, like Aaron, I didn't want it with them for one mm -hmm. reason or another. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just, you know, one-sided, but, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't I know see. if men, if men can be, can, can rise to where we need them to be, you know, for, mm. for, to, for loving, caring partners. Again, there are mm. men out there, but not the single ones. <laughs> mm. uh, Nicholas, I see a blog page coming for her called Lori's Stories. Wouldn't that be a great blog, Lori? <laughs> you know, I actually had a blog years ago, oh, a wow. dating blog, and it, yes, I did. And it was actually really interesting. I had a lot of people read it, but then I got kind of I, I was out of work at the time, so it was easier to do the writing. And then when I started working again, I, I, I let it go. Plus, it was kind of depressing because it was just mm. one miserable experience after another. But, right. uh, you know, I was like, I, my friends were like, I want this to be like a rom-com where there's like this happy ending where you find someone. I'm like, girl, me too. But it's just it's just one miserable story after another. So, oh my God. Well, and there's a lot of people that share that experience, Lori. And uh, Nicholas, I'm going to land with you because uh, we're just about out of time here. Um, how do you respond to that? Uh, the sense of man, it's a. I know somewhere there's a needle in a haystack, but there the the look of it sometimes, Nicholas, to women, uh, the outlook looks a little bleak sometimes. Nicholas, what do you say to that? I I can understand, but I, I believe it's on both sides. It's, okay. it's, um It may be difficult for some to believe it, but I believe that the most men get a bad rap because is only viewed from one side. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you think about it, when, when a woman gets into a bad relationship, it's normally with a man. You know, it's sometimes you do have the two women, you know, have a relationship, but the majority of the time it's with, you know, a man. So whenever you have a bad relationship, who are you going to blame? You're not going to say a woman. You're going to say all men are bad or it's hard to find a good man. Mm. but it can go on the same side for a man, just like using and not saying 
it, she was a bad woman, but using Aaron as an example, you had a man that was like, okay, I, I, I want to settle down. This is it. And then she said, well, I don't and in a relationship. So, and then he could say, well, it's hard to find a good woman. You know, I, I, I've dated this woman, this woman, and every time I get my heart into it, it, mm -hmm. it always go the wrong way. So mm -hmm. I believe there is a lot of good men. And it's just my opinion. I believe it's a lot of good men out there, but it's always being viewed from a woman's point of view, which is really all you have because she she's the one that's dating the man. So I believe a lot of men get a bad rap. And but at the same time, there is a lot of bad of both. You know, it's a bad lot of bad men as far as when it comes to relationships. And there's a lot of bad women when it comes to relationships. So mm. it, I, I believe it's on both sides. And it's it, I wouldn't view it as a reason to say, oh, is you know, we got to give it up. Cause I believe something that Aaron said in the beginning, she she was saying that you get what you believe. And that was very powerful to me because it's all about belief. If you believe that every man is going to be bad as you come into a relationship, that's what you're drawing in. Because it's, it's, it's like what Dr. Chase said, it's like a vi vibration level. You know, mm -hmm. when you get to that vibration level where you know what you want, then you're drawing it to you. And you're going to have some that come to you that you don't want. And that's just letting you know what you don't want. You say, oh, I went out with this man, but as soon as we start talking, he wanted to get in the bed. Well, this ain't the one. We're going to let him go. Let's find another. And eventually you'll get to that point where you're steadily drawing in what you believe, what you want. And eventually you're going to find that one guy that connects with you and, you know, takes you to the next level. Mm, how about that? Lori Peacock, you want to respond? I like that. No, they, he had some really valid points and some good points. And you're right. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of men out there that would say women are terrible and have had bad experiences with with women as well. So and I know there's some crummy women out there, too. So it's like we got to we the, the good ones of us need to find the good ones of them and, uh, you know, try to make it try to make that it happen. Part. Man, isn't that the challenge of life? It's like it seems like all the good ones are sort of looking for one another. Right, Lori? But they they seem to be passing ships to a yes. degree until, you know, God just determines that it's time, I suppose. It's a tricky balance. Uh, Aaron, I'll give you a final word. Uh, this has been a great conversation. We got about a minute or so left. Aaron, did you have any closing thoughts that you want to share before we let everybody go? Uh, no, because I, I do have to run to go to work, but I just have enjoyed this uh, conversation. I thought it is very rich and very engaging. I thought that every point brought up is valid. And um, I just I'm standing in belief that Lori will find or the guy, the perfect guy for her will find her and um, looking forward to that day for her. All of Thank us. you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that was Aaron Wiley Sands. That was the gratuitous and gracious Lori Peacock and the amazing good brother, Mr. Nicholas Mays. Well, this is KCWG, the truth.com's program's called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. Stay tuned for more. We're right back after this. I got some money to blow, I'm looking good Even as the king, I stay good Rich, mess, moose, go to Move, what you talking about? Go to Every day is Christmas and they got this roof missing All they do is throw shots at the king is foolish Mess, moose, power, move My money, money Pocket so dummy That mean my money so sick I might just cough up a hunt Rich, yeah, let me on time zone The weather, you gotta love me now if you owe me mine, better run it A hundred miles and running, yeah, I'm coming, still gunning What, that we be on, you can hate it or love it And if I said it, then I meant it But who want it? 
been on some different lately. Like I need to dumb it down for this hip hop scene. Like I only come around for this type. Yeah. If I have to bust around, it's only hits, my dear. Like what we gwine do with all these hits over here? Go up and smoke when I disappear, reappear. I'm just being sincere about how we do it. Music top tier. Shut it down, my chill. We can see right through that bull. We can tell. Better believe my product sell. Made a billion off my bull and did it. That's hell. Overachiever, I excel. If my name is on this month, better believe the stocks up. Professional winners around us. Gotta fly, lead a building, levitating on you, mother. Back on my book. I got some money to blow. I'm looking good. Even as the king, I stay hood rich. Mess, moose, gold jewelry. Ooh, what you talking about? Gold jewelry. All they do is throw shots at the king is foolish, man. Moose, power, move. Mummy rap, double back, give me that. Real rich, never advertise that. Broke, it's always playing rich, putting on that act. Whoa, when your money grow, maybe we can chat. But in the meantime, I remain streamlined. Stacking my ends if ever I'm in a decline. I double my wins, now look how my whole team shine. Hell no, blowing my dough, I'm trying to keep, 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 keep. It's ski time, ho, ho, call it the shop is free time. Don't nobody rolling the Rolls Royce for we from, so I'm going stupid as soon as I get a little sum. Dumb, they shouldn't have never gave you money. Hey, watch your mouth, boy, you don't ball, boy, you be maxing out petty cards, boy. I'm a cash cow, you a Hogwarts, tell you anything, you a fall the beast. You don't really want war, while the mean mug, that's some call for. Now I'm back on my book. I got some money to blow, I'm looking good. Even as the king, I stay hood rich. Mess, moose, go. All they do is throw shots at the kids, foolish, mess, moose, power, movements. It is one of the most common ways to greet someone in our culture. But what if shaking hands is now a thing of the past? In a perfect world, that's what White House advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci says Americans stop doing even after coronavirus has passed but is that even a reality reality What's up, everybody? This is your man, Eric Rico, and you're currently in tune to Psychotic Bump School with your host, DJ Rome, on KCWG, thetruth.com, the best internet radio station on the planet.
Okay, we are back. KCWG, the truth.com's program is called Psychotic Bump School. I'm DJ Rome. And I never heard this thing make an announcement like that before. It kind of threw me off. Uh, man, this good brother has been here multiple times before. Y'all have been listening to the previous tribute we did to the good brother B.B. Dickerson, Morris B.B. Dickerson, the bass player, lead vocalist of The World is a Ghetto from the incredible Lowrider Band, a.k.a. War, uh, one of my favorite bands from uh, the 70s and partially of the 80s. But uh, we have a guest that's recently spent some time with them as we have continued to honor this great musical champion of funk and soul. And uh, this good brother is a legend in his own right, drummer. Uh, he's a journalist. The good brother does it all. And uh, he's got the good word once again. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to Psychotic Bump School, our good brother, Mr. A. Sky Galloway. Mr. Galloway, are you there? I am back. Back, in effect. <laughs> How you been, good brother? <laughs> It's been a it's been a very interesting uh, you know past couple of weeks and and all of that but uh, it's always a pleasure to um, be here and to talk about the music and and the things that we so love and respect about our culture man and yeah. uh, so thank you for having me as always absolutely well good brother you've been doing it yourself lately man what you you had some time spent with uh, the band war recently and um i know you and i have been talking about it through text and you know this has been anticipated for quite some time but since the last time you were here good brother what's been happening with you and the band war with regards to the late great bb dickerson well friday uh may 21st 2021 i had the honor and pleasure of attending the memorial service for Morris B.B. Dickerson. Uh, it was a very, very beautiful affair. It was uh, conducted at Lincoln Memorial Park in Carson hmm. uh, from like 11 o'clock in the morning until a little after one o'clock in the afternoon. Beautiful, sunny day, a little breezy. And uh, there was a just, you know, I learned so much more about B.B. Uh, than I did from when we did our initial special. And I just really wanted to, you know, I don't know if you're going to kind of chop this up into what you already have or have it be its own freestanding uh, episode. But I just felt like there was more to share about this guy because, you know, um, in the world of major bands such as War, individual members sometimes go unsung or at least not mm -hmm. as sung as they should be and uh morris bb dickerson is definitely one of those kind of cats Absolutely. and so yeah man it was great howard scott was there from the band you know he's the guitar wow. player co-founder and harold brown uh the drummer was there mm -hmm. um <clears throat> from what i understand uh lee oscar the harmonica player could not make it in because of you know some things that were going on you know, in his life, he couldn't make it. Um, he was, you know, busy uh, with, you know, other stuff. Um, and who's the other member? Uh, Lonnie Jordan, who is the only member that's still in the band that is still called War. Uh, he went to the viewing, which was the day mm. before. Okay. So that's nice. It was nice to know that that brotherhood still stood, even though they've kind of been away from each other <clears throat> in, in respect. Uh, Lonnie did come down for the viewing and pay his respects to BB, uh, but he was not there for 
funeral service. It was also very nice to see Lance Ellis. Now, Lance is not an original member of War, but he has been a member of the Lowrider Band uh, for many, many years. I mean, he's been in the band technically longer than, you know, a lot of other people, you know, mm -hmm. but he just wasn't on any of the hit recordings, but he's a very important presence, great saxophone player, wonderful gentleman. And uh, he too was present uh, to pay respects to BB. Mm -hmm. Most surprising person that was there um, was Jerry Goldstein, mm -hmm. who was, uh, you know, a producer and manager of, of war back in the day. He right. had a heavy hand in their success. Uh, but uh, him controlling the trademark and, uh, and everything as it pertains to war has been a controversial subject, as you know anybody that follows the, the band knows, uh, and has resulted in the fact that now there is a band war that has Lonnie Jordan and you know a lot of hired gun musicians, and then there is now the Lowrider band, which you know has Howard Scott, Earl Brown, Lee Oscar. BB when he was alive, Lance Ellis, as I mentioned, on saxophone, and a couple of other gentlemen, uh, Chuck Barber on congas from uh, Bill, and uh, I think the last keyboard player they had was Keith in it, I believe, may or may not still be in the band. The keyboard chair is the one that kind of changes the most because, again, that was the chair held by Lonnie Jordan. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Jerry was there, and it was, you know, it was, you know, interesting. He did not speak. None of the members of War actually spoke at mm -hmm. this event they really left it to even though howard scott is you know family uh to bb dickerson literally i mean that uh he was his uncle uh, but they um <clears throat> wow uh but you know they left the speaking to the family and probably the reason for that is that there was a lot of it uh bb had um several i think it's about eight children and uh and many grandchildren uh, yeah, they said it's children, Morris, Malena, Gerard, Christopher, and Donna, Julian, Angelique, and Justin. Eight children. Wow. <clears throat> and, um, and and like I said, a, a whole brood of, of uh, great-grandchildren and everything. So it was, it was a beautiful dynamic in that sense, too, because I did get the feeling that some of these different, you know, satellite family members, some of them were meeting other family members for the first time and generations together and you know all in this beautiful little you know small uh memorial cemetery in carson uh mm -hmm. so there's a lot of vibration happening man it was it was mm -hmm. a beautiful event what i was just thinking about as i was listening to you with with bands like war and that time period when you know the assumption all these years you know up until he passed for me at least mm -hmm. was that lonnie jordan was the lead singer of the world is a ghetto i mean i've always thought that right and mm -hmm. then when I first heard of this band called Hall and Oates, which is Daryl Hall and John Oates, the very first song I ever heard from them was Sarah Smile. And so I'm thinking, OK, that's the voice of Hall and Oates. But John Oates sang lead on Sarah Smile. And mm -hmm. it seemed like everything after that was uh, lead vocals were handled by the great Daryl Hall. All so the hits. John always had, you know, a couple of songs on the albums. And there's one, I, you know, called Cold, Dark, and Yesterday, man. That is that's an amazing song from Big Bamboom. And uh, so but Don gets his though, in every once in a while. I'm trying to think about singles, though. So how many? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, no hit singles did he did Exactly, except for Sarah Smile, right? And then maybe She's Gone. Or that was Daryl Hall, too, right? Or was that a co-lead vocal by them? But it got lost for me when you when I found out through you 
that it wasn't Lonnie that sang on The World as a Ghetto because he sang on so many subsequent hit songs. And mm -hmm. so for B.B. to to have that stellar standout moment uh, meant a lot, man. Uh, I don't know what you've been able to find out, but I, what else did you find out, you know, being with the family, being with the band? Um, what did they, I mean, this is personal, so I don't know if you can go there, but what else was revealed about the nature of his passing? Do we know the cause of death? Uh, what caused him to leave us at this time? Uh, what else did you find out? Oh, you know, um, I think that, well, I don't, I can't speculate on, on his, on his cause of death. I wasn't spoken about there. Okay. He had had some strokes ahead of time and, you know, he was being taken care of you know, very personally and lovingly by uh, one of his sons. Uh, I believe it okay. was Morris, his first, you know, uh, Ichiban, number one son, mm. you know, had taken him into his home and uh, and was caring for him. Mm. I do know that. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't want to go too far into that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, he, you know, he hasn't, you know, he had to leave the band several years ago. And, um, and, and after that, his family, took very good care of him absolutely absolutely i mean you love hearing about that because especially you know during COVID. i mean these bands that have been you know road warriors right i mean they had their heyday as you said in the 70s but they they live on and bands like george clinton and p-funk and all of them and earth wind and fire they they live on the road and so mm -hmm. when they couldn't do that uh whatever ailments that they had had previously been able to battle through was probably alleviated somewhat by the 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 outlet and the release valve of being able to go on the road and perform a little bit and you know at least for a time being can provide a little bit of a distraction and in itself is a form of therapy you know if you if you can actually do what you do but COVID shut all that down so I can only imagine uh, you know what impact it had on the band I mean we know what it had on uh, live acts such as War. But, you know, just the personal toll uh, it took on family. So I'm really happy to hear that family was able to rally around him, take him in, you know, much like, you know, the family of Sly Stone. You know, I, I hear stories about him living at his uh, kid's house. You know, he may be in his trailer or camper. I mean, it's a separate story altogether. But right, you know, right. I'm just thinking about people that just step up, you know, with these icons and legends of funk and soul. And we think, OK, are they OK? Are they, are they married? Do they have somebody around them that's loving on them? Because they gave us so much, you know, and you just want them to be okay, you know, not knowing the personal stories or this, the struggles, you know what I'm saying? But Yeah, well, like I said, at, at this service, I mean, there were so many people and, uh, you know, so many different strands of, of family and two of his daughters spoke and uh, they were, and uh, one beautiful thing I, I want to say is that you know, when you were there and you looked and you saw somebody, you could tell right in their face <laughs> if they were related to BB or not, because nice. they all have a very distinct look. Wow. And, uh, you know, the girls, the boys, whatever. And uh, and like I said, there were a lot of, you know, Howard Scott's family was there, too. So, you know, you could see them. And mm. it was just so powerful. You know, it was it was powerful to just be wow. in the presence of 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 the family members and the extensions and generations of these incredible musicians. I mean, it just really took away, you know, I mean, it went beyond the the war thing and it just got into yeah. a you know, family you know thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, ironically, you know, I'm, I'm, I want you to pick up right there, but just last night, I kid you not, and I don't know how I stumbled across it, but I was on YouTube and I came across the video for 2300 Jackson Street by the Jacksons. Now that was the one and only collaboration I think that had Janet, Michael, 
all the brothers, Catherine, Joe, and all their kids together. Mm -hmm. Right. And you could you could just see the family resemblance, you know, from Joe and Catherine on down to uh, the littlest ones at the time, you know. Yeah. And the 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 blueprint was there in all of them: Reby, Jackie, Tito. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, those we see, I mean, those are the ones that, you know, they were all on the cover of Ebony once, you know, but mm -hmm. the really deep thing is seeing the other generations, you know, when you see absolutely. their children and their aunts and uncles and, and everything, it's just like, whoa, it's a tribe, you know, and, and, yeah. and literally, I mean, like, you know, we come from that, you know, so like seeing the, the masses gathered is just, mm -hmm. it's, it's really powerful thing and you always just hope that you know um families are able to take that energy and that spirit and uh yes. and really you know stay together and recognize you know the strength and the beauty of this unity and mm -hmm. uh that's what I, I i really uh felt and hope you know continues i mean family dynamics as you very well know can be very deep but there's not you know and it's so sad that it's funerals uh and memorial services yeah. where a lot of folks get together feel like I'm chased right now but it's but when you're in the moment and you're and I'm an outsider of the family standing there looking at all of this uh and they have graciously allowed me to take part it's um it's just it's profound and it's very crystal mm. when you see it yeah I want to hear this obituary man because there, there's nothing like finding the words and being the wordsmith that you are good brother and I can only envision uh what your your um your generous condolences were expressed at the uh, the time of the uh the going away celebration but you know these are words uh of his life you know the the official obituary i'm sure approved of by the family oh yes and, um which you know, i did not write i'm not reading the yeah i understand i wrote it yeah right, i'm just right. i just i'm gonna read it for the edification of those who were not there and i'll Absolutely. just give you you know some really good background on you know why he started playing and well, let me tell you 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 take your time good brother you have the floor uh mr a scott galloway all right this is the official obituary of mr morris bb and it said morris bb dickerson was born august 3rd 1949 which means he was a leo to mrs hattie dickerson Hysaw and gus mitt dickerson in torrance california where he was raised with strong Christian values and surrounded by love. They moved to a beautiful little home in Harbor City where he grew up. And those of us who love war remember that Howard Scott introduced BB as being from Harbor City, California on a Baby Brother, which was a live a Boogie Woogie song that they that closed out the all day music album. Howard Scott said from Harbor City, California, BB Dickerson on bass. That's where he grew up with his brother Dennis and his sisters Daryl, Judith, Janice, Joya, and Joanne. Uh, so he had one brother who preceded him in death and, and all of those sisters. So you know that was probably a uh, contributor to his sensitivity being around all those women growing up. As a young man, he enjoyed music and playing basketball in his free time. He attended Narbonne High School and later transferred to Banning High School. He graduated. At the age of 13, he got his first bass. His father picked a beautiful Fender jazz bass sunburst with mother of pearl block inlays. He was always so proud of it. He said his mother was scared that he would tear it up, so she locked it away in her closet. 
Well, we all know later he would do just that, tear the bass up. Bibi learned how to play music along with family, and he eventually started playing in venues around Los Angeles. Bibi's first band, The Creators, formed in 1962 with Charles Miller on saxophone, Howard Scott on guitar, Harold Brown on drums, Bonnie Jordan on keyboards. This was the first band of 10 soldiers, T-I-N, soldiers. In 1968, Thomas Sylvester Papa D. Allen joined the band, and the band renamed itself Night Shift. One year later, on a fateful night in North Hollywood while backing Deacon Jones, who was a football player at the time, the band met Eric Burden and Mr. Lee Oscar, and these young men flew into the music scene head first. In 1969, this diverse mix of talents combined with the beautiful multiculture of Compton, Harbor City, and Long Beach created the sound with uh, created the sound known as war, not the band, but the sound known as war, all caps, W-A-R. Before they knew it, war became a household name, touring, recording, and performing around the globe, keeping dance floors busy. On September 18, 1970, Burden and War had a gig at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London. Jimi Hendrix sat in with the group for the last 35 minutes of War's set, which ever blew Bibi's mind. He loved Jimmy dearly. The next day, Hendrix transitioned to his next song. Loss broke Bibi's heart. By the end of 1970, Burden and War released two albums together. Eric Burden declares war and the black man's burden. On Burden's departure, E.B. and the rest of the band recorded their self-titled album, War, and it says here, 10 more albums throughout the 70s. And I mentioned what those albums were before. Uh, but once again, War, All Day Music, The World is a Ghetto, War Alive, Deliver the Word, Why Can't We Be Friends, Greatest Hits that featured one new song, Summer, uh, Platinum Jazz, um, Youngblood soundtrack and Galaxy. Oh, they missed anything. I said deliver the word, I hope. That was all of them. Those were the 10, the initial one. And the rest of the band recorded itself out album, 10 more albums throughout the 70s. <clears throat> Music that healed, moved, and grooved the world. NASA themed their song, Why Can't We Be Friends, in outer space to astronauts and cosmonauts during the first joint U.S.-Soviet space in 1970. Single Cisco Kid went gold in 45 minutes without the internet. They sold millions of albums and their funk will always be legendary. After taking a break from performing, B.B. focused on family and his business. He ran a successful shop called Tobacco Road where he continued to meet old fans and make new ones. In the 1990s, he accepted Howard Scott's offer to start performing again. Howard, Harold, Lee, and Beebe formed the original Lowrider Band, formerly known as the SOB, same old band. He went on to enjoy the road again, getting on stage, seeing old and new faces, and making folks dance, just like in the old days. He stayed touring all the way up until he could not anymore. He is our hero. He is our hero. The world, he may have been known as Bibi, 
to us, you will forever be a beloved son, father, grandfather, great grandfather, uncle, cousin, nephew, and friend to many. He is preceded in death by his father, Gus, brother Dennis, and sisters, Gerald, Liddy, and Joya Fubby. He leaves to cherish his memory, his parents, Hattie and Elroy Hysaw, his sisters, Judith, Joanne, and Joanne, and Janice, who is married to Donald Barber, his uncle, Howard, Howard Scott of War, his wife, Jennifer, his aunts, Geraldine, married to Willie Gaines, and Shirley, his children, Morris, Malena, Gerard, Christopher, Jindana, Julian, Angelique, and Justin, host of grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and cousins, his bandmates, his friends, his community, and his dedicated fans. And the family closes saying, we love you. Wow. Morris B.B. Dickerson, ladies and gentlemen. A. Scott Galloway. Thank you, good brother. show y'all psychotic bump school is the place where education and entertainment meet 
at the intersection of funk and soul. My name is DJ Rome and you know we're here every Monday evening from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific time. Check back with us. We shall return next week. Also want to thank our very special guests for the evening. Lori Peacock, Aaron Wiley-Sands, Nicholas Mays, A. Scott Galloway, and of course the good brother Mr. Jeffrey Keller. Also want to send a very special shout out to Mr. Frank Starks, who is the Iron Man behind the board. And we're out of here, y'all. Take care. <laughs>